summer. So let's pray, and then we will dive into Isaiah 53. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to gather as a church family in person and online. We're so grateful to be able to open your word and to hear from you, to read the words of Isaiah that were written many, many years ago as they prophesy about the, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just move in this time, that it would not be my words that are spoken, Lord, but ultimately it would be you speaking. I pray that as we all woke up this morning and were faced with different distractions and temptations and different situations that would possibly pull our eyes away from you and focus on the stress and all those other things, Lord, help, let that not be the case. In these next few moments, let us focus our eyes on you, on your cross, and on what you did for us, Lord. I just am so excited to see what you're going to do. I pray all this in your name. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn to the book of Isaiah with me, chapter 53. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. We're in the Easter season, right? Jelly beans have been at the store for a long time. I've had plenty of those, probably enough for all of us in here. I remember growing up, I always looked forward to Easter, the Easter egg hunts, uh, seeing what kind of candy I would get in my Easter basket. I loved the little Easter egg hunts when they actually had money in them and, and all those things. You know, we all get excited about Easter, but it's easy to get very distracted uh, during these few weeks, right? It's easy to focus on all these different things, like the Easter bunny or uh, family dinners or just life in general, and not focus on Christ, on his cross and what he did for us. This is a, a beautiful week. It's the holy week. The last few days of Jesus' life before he went to the cross and was crucified. So I really have one hope as we look at Isaiah. I guess maybe a few hopes. It's one that we would think about the cross and that we would look at Jesus and all that he did for us and we would stand in amazement. I hope that those who do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior would come to salvation this very day. And I hope that we as Christians, our hearts would be stirred, we would be excited, and we would go forward this next week, this holy week, last week of Christ, living before he's dead, crucified. I hope that we would think on that. And when we come in on Easter Sunday, we would be ready for a celebration because we would have had thought deeply about our sin and Christ's sacrifice and what he did for us. That is my hope this morning, when we look at Isaiah, we will see one of the clearest explanations of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And it's interesting, it's an Old Testament book that was written 700 years before the birth of Christ, but yet it is one of, if not the clearest, depiction and description of what Jesus did on the cross. Some would say this is the fifth gospel. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then there's Isaiah 53. So I'm excited. I, I, I'm really looking forward to this. But there's a few things we need to know about Isaiah 53. This passage is actually a song or a poem. And it's one of many in Isaiah that were talking about this servant who would come to save the people from their sins. And in Isaiah 53, it's the suffering servant, the Messiah who would come to be killed and to sacrifice himself for us. This is a poem, so there's different stanzas. And really today we're going to be focusing on stanza two through four. 
Uh, if you look at stanza one through five, the theme of those stanzas is the exaltation, the glorification of Christ. But that's a lot for next week, right? The, the resurrection is what we're going to celebrate next week. So we're going to focus on two through four and see the humiliation and the, the crucifixion of Jesus and see what he accomplished for us on the cross. Isaiah 53, over the years, has become the target of many secular Bible scholars. Uh, this clear depiction of Jesus is a problem for these people because they like to look at God's Word as just a historical document filled with flaws and errors. They like to look at it that way so they don't have to believe it. They don't have to uh, live by it. They just want to see it as something that uh, was written in its time and it should stay there. It shouldn't be followed. You shouldn't model your life after it. They think it's just a a document, but Isaiah 53 poses a huge problem to these people because it describes what Jesus did on the cross perfectly, and he wrote 700 years before the coming of Christ. It is amazing. So if you're a skeptic in this room, if you're not sure about Jesus, if you're not sure if you should devote your life to him, I think you'll be interested to see this prophecy that certainly came true during the life and the death of Jesus Christ. And so as we read, we're going to start in Isaiah 53, verse 1. But by show of hands, in person and online, I want to ask a question. How many of us have felt rejection in our life? Put your hand up. How many of us have been rejected before? I think that's everybody, right? We've all felt rejection at some point in our life, and we all know that rejection hurts, Right? Maybe it was a, a middle school or a high school crush or sweetheart that, that broke your heart. Right? Or maybe it was something more serious. Maybe it was a significant other or a friend who stabbed you in the back or a family member. We have all felt rejection. And it hurts. It stings. It cuts deep. It is not fun. No one loves rejection. No one seeks out rejection. In fact, we all run away from it. We do everything we can to avoid somebody saying, you're not what I want. I don't need you. I don't like you. I don't love you. I don't want you. We all avoid that. But what we'll see in the second stanza in Isaiah 53 is that Jesus Christ was uh, rejected we will see that Jesus was well acquainted with the idea and the feelings that come with rejection. All throughout his earthly ministry, he was rejected, pushed away, not desired. We will see that Jesus Christ can relate to all of us as we all raised our hand and said we felt rejection. Read with me in verse 1. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, this is talking about Christ, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not." So if you were to read in the first stanza in Isaiah 52, you would see that God is speaking. But as we move along in the passage, it shifts. It's not God speaking anymore, but it's the Israelites. And you say, why, why are they speaking? What are they saying? They are speaking because this is a prophecy. And now they are reflecting back and they are mourning the fact that they rejected Christ. They are looking back and they have finally realized what this Messiah had came to do. And now they are mourning their rejection of him. You see, the Jews in Jesus' day did not worship him. 
They did not love him. They did not treat him well. In fact, they were the ones who crucified him along with you and me. The Jews did not uh, seek him as their Messiah. They rejected him and pushed him to the cross. Verse 2 and 3 show us two reasons why they did this, right? Because when we read the New Testament, we see all these miracles that Jesus did, all these amazing things. And we say, how could someone crucify him? How could you reject him? He surely was God, right? Well, there's two reasons that I, Isaiah uh, writes that the reasons why they rejected him. The first, they rejected him because Jesus didn't seem important to them. Verse 2 says, For he grew up before them, or before him, like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. Right? Jesus was, to them, just a little root, just coming out of the dry ground. Not significant. You wouldn't look twice at him. It's not some beautiful tree or plant or anything like that. Just, just a root out of the dry ground. He seemed not important. He seemed like a nobody. He was insignificant to them. It says he had no form or majesty that they should look at him and no beauty that they should desire him. When Jesus came to this earth, he didn't come riding in on a, a heavenly chariot, right? Or when he was a walking around performing miracles, he didn't have thousands of angels singing his praise and glory. He didn't have political power. He wasn't born into a wealthy family. He wasn't a celebrity. He was just an everyday normal guy. He had no features or nothing about him that they would have looked at and said, this is our Messiah. They were looking for someone who had great political power, who could overthrow the Roman Empire and set up this nation state of Israel. And Jesus didn't fit that description. They looked at him and said, he's a nobody. He's not important. He's not the guy that we're looking for. They also looked at him and they said that Jesus seemed like a loser. Look at verse 3 in the words that are used to describe Christ. It says he was despised, which carries the idea of worthlessness. They looked at Jesus and thought that he was worthless, good for nothing. The passage says that he was rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He knew what it was like to be in physical pain, mental pain, emotional pain. That's how they describe his whole life, a man of sorrows. He was well acquainted with grief. It says they esteemed him not. Look at verse 3. That's not how you would want to describe your life, right? That's not what you would want to be known for. And that's what they saw when they saw Jesus, a loser. That's what Danny Aiken would say. He said, Jesus just came across to them as a loser. He was unimportant, insignificant. So they overlooked him. They rejected him. Jesus, while he was on this earth, was not valued like he should have been. His identity was completely misunderstood, which led to him being rejected. And I think we have to think about this for a moment. We have to dwell on the rejection of Jesus because this is significant. This is important. Think in your head all the things that you know about Jesus, who he was, what he did, how great he was. Think about that as I read Philippians 2, 5, and 6. It says, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think about this. Jesus Christ, a member of the Holy Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He was the creator of the universe. He was there with God is what John 1, 1 in, in that passage tells us, is that Jesus was there when the world was created. The God of the universe stepped down to this earth. That alone should blow our mind. 
that God would leave heaven to come to earth. But he didn't just leave heaven to, to be worshipped on earth or to be praised or have people following him. He could have, but he didn't. He stepped down to this earth to be rejected. To not be valued. He stepped down to this earth to have people spit in his face, beat him, and crucify him. This is beautiful, but why would he do that? No sane person would do this, right? You and I avoid rejection. Why would the God of the universe seek out rejection? Well, it's because he loves you and he loves me. Jesus came to this earth to save us. And he faced the ultimate rejection, God of the universe being rejected by his creatures, his creations. But without the rejection of Jesus, there would be no crucifixion of Jesus He knew this was his mission. He knew this was what he had to do. In the last days, hopefully you'll read these passages over the next few days. We see in Matthew 26, Jesus faced rejection by one of his own disciples who betrayed him, Judas. In Matthew 26, 59, Jesus is rejected by the chief priest and the council when they seek out falsehoods and false accusations to condemn him. In Matthew 27, 20 and 21, Jesus is rejected by the crowd when they choose to free Barabbas, a criminal, over the innocent God of the universe. This is the ultimate rejection, the ultimate stab in the back. And Jesus did it for you and I. The God of the universe stepped down to save us, to face rejection and ultimately crucifixion. I hope that this stirs in your heart great affection for Jesus. As we go throughout this week and we think about our sin and how wicked we are and we think about what Christ did for us, we think about the rejection that he faced. Read Matthew 26, 27, 28. Read what he went through and know that he did that for you and for me. He stepped down to be rejected, to live in poverty, to be considered a man of sorrows for you and I so that we might be saved. I hope this causes you to worship him. I hope in your heart right now there's a bit of excitement and thankfulness and and praise swelling up in your soul for the God of the universe who was rejected for you and for me. It's beautiful. But as we move in the passage, we see that Jesus wasn't only rejected, but Jesus was our Atonement. We see this in verses 4 through 6. In the Old Testament, David just talked about it a little bit as he was performing the Lord's Supper. In the Old Testament, God was the same God as he was in the New Testament. He was just, he was holy, which meant that he had to punish sin. There had to be a payment for sin. So the Israelites, they were under the sacrificial system. So anytime they would sin, anytime they would not follow God in his words, they would sacrifice an animal to atone for their sins, to pay for their wrongdoings. They would need to appease the wrath of God and receive forgiveness by sacrificing an animal. And whenever they would do this, they would take the animal, the spotless lamb, and they would lay their hand on the head of the animal. And what that was was a symbolic transfer of their guilt to the animal. And then they would sacrifice it to uh, receive forgiveness. They would transfer their sin to the animal. And so as we look at Isaiah 53 and we look at these next few verses, the language is very sacrificial in nature. It speaks of this man coming to be killed for people. 
And we say, why is that? Why is this man being killed? Why is he sacrificing himself? It's because the people are sinful. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This verse highlights the sinfulness of mankind, the sin that you and I have. All people are lost. All people are sinners, right? No matter what society would say, it doesn't matter your race, your gender, your tax bracket, your family heritage, how you were raised, or any other factor, we are all sinners. <laughs> we're all equally sinners. We're all fallen, and we've all turned away from God. It says all of us, every single one, has gone his own way. We are all lost. Psalm 14 says this, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. They all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. God looks down from heaven, just looking for one, one good person, and he can't find anyone. Even the best of people are sinners by nature. And you say, well, that's the Old Testament, dude. So you turn to the New Testament, and we have a God of love, a God of grace. It's completely different, completely different. Look at Romans 3. The Apostle Paul cites Psalm 14, saying this, What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And he cites Psalm 14, as it is written, no, written, no one is righteous, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The Bible is clear from Genesis 3 and the fall of man all the way through the New Testament that you and I are sinners by nature. You and I are wicked people who do not seek God. We don't seek after him by nature. We rebel against him. Charles Spurgeon says this about our sin problem. He says, The venom of sin is the very fountain of our being. It has poisoned our heart. It is the very marrow of our bones, and it is as natural for us as anything that belongs to us. By your nature, just Left by yourself, without God's grace, without God's mercy, without the Holy Spirit inside of you, you and I are sinners. And because of that, the wrath and the judgment of God is upon us. Because remember, he's holy and just. He must punish sin. So Romans 3.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And this is the beauty of the cross. As we look at Isaiah 4 and 5, this is the beautiful message of the cross. That Christ came to atone for our sins. Because we were in a dangerous place, right? We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't be a good person and, and atone for our own sins, right? We couldn't be our own sacrificial lamb. That's why the Jews had to sacrifice over and over and over. And so as we look, and Christ came to atone for us. So when we look to the cross, when we come in on Easter, we're celebrating and we're worshiping that Christ atoned for our sins. Look at verse uh, 4 and 5. It says, surely, means you can confidently know this and trust in this. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, spitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. 
And with his wounds we are healed. With his stripes we are healed. Jesus, excuse me, Jesus came to be our atonement. The punishment that you and I deserve, Jesus bore on his back. It says that Jesus bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. That word, that literally means that Jesus saw you and he took all the punishment that you deserved, that I deserved. He took that off of our backs, laid it on his own, and carried it for us. Notice all the words that are used. It says that Jesus was pierced. Think of the nails that were hammered into his hands and to his feet. It says he was crushed. Carries the idea of being pulverized or trampled. Think of Jesus in the spear crashing into his side, breaking his bones. The slaps to the face, carrying his own cross. He was crushed for you and I. He took the chastisement, the punishment that we deserved on the cross. It says his wounds, his stripes. He received those from Pilate who had him whipped and the Roman soldiers who struck him on the head. All of this, beautifully predicted by Isaiah, was meant for us, for me and for you. The brutal, wicked punishment that Jesus received on the cross was meant for us. It was our sorrows, our griefs, our transgressions, our iniquities, our sin, but yet he took our place. It was you and me who needed peace and healing. One writer would say this, Every arrow of divine judgment that should have struck us individually, every arrow that should have come our way, every arrow was deflected and sent toward him. All of the arrows for all of the sins for all of us. And as all the arrows converged on him, he took the wounds and received the healing. This is the beautiful message of the gospel, the beautiful message of the Easter season. Jesus in your place. That's substitutionary atonement. David mentioned that last week. Jesus dying for us, taking our punishment in our place so that we might go free, so that we might live. Jesus, holy and righteous, innocent and blameless, God in the human flesh, dying for your sins so that you might live. This is the beautiful message that we were just singing about in all those songs. Christ dying for us. One writer says that this is our peace punishment. We can have peace with God because Christ was punished for us. It looks like I've, I've taken a lot of my time, so I need, to, I need to hurry and finish. But I want to say this. We can be healed from our sins because Jesus bore our sins. And there's really two categories, two groups of people in here. There are those who have already had their sins atoned for through the work of Jesus Christ. And there are those who haven't. There are some of us in here who have not placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I have a question for those people. I have a question for all of you who have not trusted in Jesus for your salvation. Why haven't you? What is stopping you? What is the big roadblock in the way that you're thinking? Why won't you turn to him and believe him? Do you not believe that there's a God Do you not believe you're a sinner? I would tell you, ask those people that are closest to you, who know you the best, and have them be honest with you. They'll tell you, you're a sinner. You're not perfect. Do you believe that you can find peace outside of Jesus? How's that going for you? Why haven't you placed your faith and trust 
in Jesus, one day you will stand before God. All of us will. There'll be two groups of people. Those who will be found righteous because Christ atoned for their sins on the cross and those who will not. And I would just ask you, if you haven't placed your faith and trust in him, why haven't you? What is stopping you? What is stopping you? And real quickly, we'll look at the last point, and then we'll close. Jesus was rejected. He atoned for us, but Jesus was also submissive. We see this in the next stanza. The greatest injustice that the world has ever seen was the crucifixion of Jesus. A perfect man was crucified. It says in verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. Through all the suffering that Jesus endured, the beating, the lashes, through all of it, it says, yet he opened not his mouth. And Jesus is compared to a lamb that is led to the slaughter. It says, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears, he is, si- or is silent, so he opened not his mouth. One commentator noted that a uh, sheep or a lamb, they don't realize if they're going to the slaughter or to be sheared. They, they don't know, right? They, they don't have the mental capacity to be able to comprehend what's going on. But Jesus knew. Jesus, as he was going to the cross, as he was coming down to this earth, knew that he was going to be rejected, knew that he was going to be crucified, treated as a criminal. He knew that he was going to be perfect, but yet he still did it. He still came. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb who died in our place. He didn't protest his death. He didn't fight back. He didn't call down angels to rescue him because he wanted to save you and he wanted to save me. He willingly suffered so that we might go free. One commentator says, Nobody heard a protest from the servant of the Lord, for he was on a holy mission to atone for the sins of the world. Jesus submitted in his afflictions. He submitted in death. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. In the final week of Jesus' life, he faced five trials. In each trial, he was treated unjustly. He was oppressed, but yet he did not speak. He did not fight back. And it says in verse 8, As for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, Christ died. Some people try to argue that Christ didn't die on the cross, that he didn't actually physically die, but Isaiah 53 is clear that he was cut off from the land of the living. How grateful are you for the submission of our Savior to the point of death for you and for me, for you and for me. And he was buried in his grave, and we'll keep moving just for time's sake. I want to challenge every Christian in the room. I typically have at least one challenge for all of us. I want to ask you this. Do we think we are better than Christ? Do you think you're better than Christ? Remember the passage in Philippians that I read. It was calling us to have the same attitude as Christ, that of service and humility, self-sacrifice, serving others. Why is it that Jesus was able to humble himself, God in the human flesh, right? was able to humble himself to the point of death, but yet we often struggle to serve others. We often struggle to humble ourselves to serve other people. We're so tempted in this life to make everything about us, right? 
It's my time. It's my money. It's my family. From everything to how we raise our kids to the decisions we make in our life, right? Don't we always ask the question, is this what I want to do? Does this benefit me? We struggle to serve. I'm thankful that Jesus didn't have that same attitude. Then think about this. If Jesus was able to lay aside robes of glory to come and serve to the point of death, we should be able to serve others. If Jesus was able to step down from heaven to serve you and to serve me, why do we think we can't serve others? Why don't we? Why don't we serve with this life that we have been given? John Oswald would say this, for you and I as Christians to be able to serve others, we have to know our final destination. Because if we think, if we fall into the trap that believing that this world is all that we know, this life is all that we have, it makes sense why you would live for yourself. But we know as Christians that we ultimately win in the end, right? We can be rejected, we can suffer, but yet ultimately we will be in heaven with Christ. We will win. Oswald would say that kind of assurance will be necessary for servants because their lot is one of astonishment and rejection. We all want the balm of servanthood, but who can bear its twisted face? We're called to serve, to be like Christ. One of the hardest parts about serving is being taken for granted. You will serve other people. You will take the shirt off of your back. You will give everything to a person, and yet they'll blow you off. They'll look over you. They won't even say, thank you. Think of Christ. Little did the people know he was God who had came to serve them, and they pushed him away, crucified him. Brothers and sisters, let this Easter season be the season where we build true humility and service. I told the youth group students the other week, because we've been talking about serving others, that we're never more like Jesus than when we love others and we serve them. Let us have the same attitude of our Savior and serve Our church has many openings for people to serve. Your workplaces have many people that need to be served. You know many lost people that need to be served. Let us serve them. Are we too good for it? I surely hope not. I surely hope not. And as we close, I just want to ask two questions. As we enter into this holy week, remembering the crucifixion of Jesus, Isaiah 53 is relevant for us in two ways. And I'll I'll say this quickly. First... The question that I want to ask you is for the unbelievers. Will you accept the offering that Jesus has made available for you? Will you accept salvation that Christ has accomplished on your behalf? You are a sinner in need of grace. And on the cross, Jesus provided it for you. Jesus stood in your place, took your punishment so that you might live forever with him. Not only in this life, but in the next Every other world religion really offers a way for you to be saved. It says, do this so you can be freed from this world. But not a single one of them can offer you a prophecy written 700 years before the life of Christ that predicted his death, burial, and resurrection perfectly. Why would you not believe that? He's done all the work for you. Christianity is the only religion that is believable. Because all the other religions fall apart when you look at them. And think about your life. When you just live for yourself like your, your own God, your life falls apart. 
Christianity is the only way. Only Christianity can offer countless prophecies that predicted Christ coming and dying for you. Why would you not believe this beautiful message? You cannot save yourself. Ephesians 2 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, not a result of the things that you do. I think sadly so many people think that they can get into heaven by just being a good person, just going to church, taking my kids to church, putting money in the offering plate. You can't. You're a sinner. The Bible says that all we have to do to be saved is to repent of our sins and believe in the gospel. That's what Mark says, repent and believe in the good news. Romans 10, 19 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's become Christian. Repenting of your sins and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ that he saved you on the cross. And as you look at your life, if you think your salvation comes from anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ and what he did for you, you're wrong. It's not because you've been baptized. It's not because you take communion. It's not because you give. not because you serve. It's because Christ died for you. I would call on you in just a few moments as we sing and finish to place your faith and trust in Jesus. Why would you not? Where else will you go? Who will save your soul? I have a question for all the Christians. As I I just pointed out to you guys, will you live a life of servant? I know David was pushing us last week to serve and to be involved in the church and involved in our communities. Will you? How many of us served this past week? How many of us heard his sermon, walked out, and didn't serve a single person? Christ served us. Let us go out and serve others. Let us serve with humility and love and be okay with facing rejection. Let us reject the American dream that says life is all about us and take up humble service as we follow Christ. As you think about your one that you're praying for, that you're seeking to share the gospel with, I would invite you to share Isaiah 53 with them this week. It's a powerful tool. It's an apologetic for God's word, right? The prophecy that came true, and it's the gospel message. Will you go out and serve your one by sharing the gospel with them this week? I would invite both groups, Christians and non-Christians, to be serious in these next few moments as we sing to confess your sins. If you're a Christian, maybe you need to confess your pride, your lack of humility, your lack of service. Maybe you need to come down to the altar and ask for forgiveness. There's nothing special about the altar. You can stay in your seat. But maybe you would come forward and symbolically let everybody know, I'm going to serve as Christ has served me. Come find me, David, or anybody else and be saved today. I'm not promised tomorrow. I don't know where else you would go. I want to read this quote. It's not on the screen. I, I kind of put it in last minute this morning. But I hope this captures our hearts and 
would describe us well as we go forward this next week. In this devotion, it said, Our lives and worship are transformed forever when by grace we realize that while God owes us nothing but wrath, God owes us nothing but wrath, he has executed his wrath not on those who trust Christ, but on Jesus himself. God didn't pour out his wrath on wrath on you, but he poured it out on his son. Listen to this, and let this be us next Sunday and throughout the week. We should be the most joyful people of all because of our great salvation. This joy does not deny the reality of our trials, but it is a deep abiding peace and knowledge that God has delivered us and will bring us into the fullness of his kingdom. Let that be true of us. Let's pray. a sinner like me to preach your word. Lord, I pray that your spirit moved in these few moments. I pray that your word convicted hearts. Lord, I pray that in these next few moments, people would be saved. Sinners would come home to you. Help the body, help the believers to rejoice in your suffering. You paid the ultimate price, took the ultimate punishment for us. Thank you for that. Lord, we praise you for that. Let this church be a church full of people who humbly serve you. setting aside your robes of glory to save us. God, we pray all this in your name. Amen.